Welcome to the Overflow Podcast. We pray you are encouraged by this message. For more info, notes, or other messages, download the Overflow Church app or visit our website at overflowdfw.com. We started talking about worship last week and how David, the one thing that we know about David is David was a worshiper, right? If we, we know that he was a king, we know that he's a warrior, we know he's a shepherd boy, we know he slayed Goliath, but the thing that we know most about David is that he was a worshiper. He was the prototype of what a worshiper looks like. In fact, uh, before David ever wore a crown, he yielded a sword. Before he ever yielded, uh, wore a crown or yielded a sword, he carried a harp. Uh, he would sing and play songs while his sheep were sleeping. We know this, that, that he would play before a mad king, that he would sing songs, that most of the psalms that are written, over half of them, were written by David as he was worshiping the Lord. And we know him, that he was, he was not just a worshiper in a moment. Are you guys with me? He didn't just ha- worship God in a season. He actually worshiped God through all the seasons of his life. And David is really the example of what it looks like to have a worshiping lifestyle. Everybody say worshiping lifestyle. So it's one thing to, to come into church and to worship the Lord, lift your hands, sing. We talked a lot about that last week. I mean, you know, it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to have a lifestyle of worship. Right? Uh, how many, anybody has ever told you that before? They've been like, um, you know, well, worship is a lifestyle. It's kind of like, we'll start talking about worship like during church, right? Oh, worship was so good today. And have you ever said that to somebody and they're like, whoa, wait a minute, right? And they're like, worship is a lifestyle. How many of you have ever heard that before? And so they're almost kind of like minimizing the moment. I've heard that before, you know, well, worship's a lifestyle. And usually it's someone protesting because in the moments, they don't really press in. That's usually what it is. It's usually a protest of someone that's like, well, I'm not really, I'm more of a word guy than a worship guy. How many know that you need to be a word guy, word girl, and you need to be a worship guy and a worship girl? And how many know the word and the worship come together? You, there's no, there's no, none of this, we, we don't have isolation. It's, it's a total pursuit. Come on, we're not trying to isolate these areas of our life. So, Again, oftentimes it's spoken as a protest. We just, basically what it means, normally when people say that, they say worship is a lifestyle. What they mean is this, that we just live lives and behave good, and that's worship. Right. And there is some truth to that. There is some truth to, to, to we live holy, we be holy, as he is holy, and that brings glory to God. Right. Isn't that right? However, it does, does not minimize the experience that we have when we engage the Father and we declare of his worth. Right. So when we talk about worship, what we're saying is two things. I'm kind of recapping from last week. First of all, that he has our attention. That's really what worship is. Worship is when we give God our attention and then we give him our affection. Right. And so like we so when you're working, the worship lifestyle looks like this. I just need to kind of check my mind out of my grind and focus upon the father. Right. It might not be total engagement in the moment, but you're just kind of, you're kind of peeking into heaven for a moment. Right. You're kind of peeking into his presence, and then you're just like, thank you, Jesus. Or you're just like, I love you, Lord. Yeah. Or, God, you're just so good. This is what the worship lifestyle looks like. It doesn't just look like I'm behaving, I'm doing good, and at the end of the day, I go, thank you, Jesus. Right? right? I, get the, I get the award. Good day today. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank God. How many know that is not a worshiping lifestyle? A worshiping lifestyle says that my mind is steadfast upon the Lord. Yes. 
My attention is on him and my affections are on him too. So I'm not just tuning in and going, I'm aware of God, but I'm also saying I'm giving him some affection. So that is the worship lifestyle, that, it, that it's a thread through our life, not a thread of Sunday to Sunday. Come on, if that's all you got, then, then let me introduce you to Jesus. Come on. I mean, you know that worship is not a 30-minute session that we have on a Sunday morning. That's a great place where we come together. That's a corporate worship setting. We need that. We want that. I'm not minimizing that. You need that. But you better learn to have that every day. Every day of your life that you're worshiping God. You good? That we can love God in any environment. When it's good, when we've had a good day, when it's bad, when we've had a bad day, when it's stressful, when it's full of tension, I can worship God in that moment, in that environment. And we, we, you know, we love to say statements like this. God is always with me. Listen, if God is always with you, then he's always worthy of your worship. Always, all the time, not just a few minutes on Sundays, not just in your devotional time, but throughout your day, setting your attention, setting your affection and just breaking away from just a moment, even if it's just in your mind or in your heart. And you just say, man, I just love you, Jesus. I just set my affections. In fact, one thing that I've found is when I'm stressed out, when I'm frustrated, if I'll just pull away from that moment and set my attention off my frustration and set my attention upon the Lord, he will just say, all right. Let me just calm your heart. Let me just deal with the tension that's inside of you because you've set your affections on me instead of setting your affections on your frustration. How many know we need that? Come on. So the worshiping lifestyle, what does that look like? What does that mean when we say a worship lifestyle? We talked a little bit about that, but the first thing it means when we say that we have a worshiping lifestyle is is we're saying that God's presence is a priority. God's presence is a priority. I might even say it this way. God's presence is the priority. See, God's presence should be the priority of your home. It should be the priority of your relationships. God's presence, that he's there, that he's in the midst. And I'm not, listen, I'm not just talking about because the Bible tells me so. We talk about this a lot. We're talking about tangibility. Because it is, I don't know about you, It doesn't do me any good to have a verse in a Bible sitting on a shelf knowing Jesus is with me if I'm not experiencing it in the moment. It does me no good. A promise without presence does me no good. Maybe it's good for you. It's not for me. It's not enough. So sometimes I have to dig in hard to the moment and say, God, I need to find you right now. My frustration, I need you here. And then he's like, here I am. I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> and everybody around me is going, yes, thank you, Lord. <laughs> right? <laughs> thank you that he tuned in, <laughs> that he gave God his attention. So God's presence is a priority. It means that God's presence, that he, everybody say he, is my highest value. That he is my highest value. And we see this in the life of David. David wasn't perfect, right? And we're not just talking about Bathsheba, which we'll talk about in two weeks. Throughout his life, we talked last week about some of the mistakes he made. David was not perfect, but the thing, the thread in David's life is that he valued the presence of the Lord. It was the highest value in his life. And last week we talked about David when he said, you know, we need to go get the ark. We need to put it in our capital city, the Ark of the Covenant. So they go and they get the Ark of the Covenant. They're bringing it back. You should go back and listen to next, last week. It's pretty dramatic. But when David brings the ark into Jerusalem, they put it in what's called a tabernacle. In those days, the, the presence of God, they had a tent 
Remember the children of Israel when they ran around the, the wilderness? Well, they put it in a portable tent, the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the reason why they put it in a tent is because they were moving around the desert for 40 years. So they wanted God to go with them. So they didn't build a permanent home, but they built them a temporary home that was mobile. It was kind of like a mobile home, yeah. a tent. So David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. David's sitting in his palace. He's on his throne. He's in his beautiful crib. You know, they had a crib episode. It'd be legit. And here he is in his crib. And he says this. He says this. 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. So it was, the, the battles are kind of done. And he, and he kind of sit back. How many of you have ever done that? Like you kind of get to the end of the day or you get to the end of an event or something that you've been working towards and you just sit back and you look at your work and you just kind of relax and you're like, <sighs> so David sits in his palace. He's looking around all that he has. He's sitting on his throne. The enemies are defeated. He sits back and he goes, <sighs> and this is what he says. He demonstrates his highest value. I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace. But the ark of God is out there in a tent. Here I am with all these nice things. And the Lord, the presence of the Lord is in a tent. And so he he says, I will build a house for the Lord. God must have a dwelling place. And this is where David gets the vision of building the actual temple. You guys know the temple. So the presence of the Lord went from a tabernacle, a portable temporary house, to a more permanent home, the temple. And then now we are, come on, the temple. So David has this vision, and his son Solomon, we call it Solomon's temple, temple is the one that has that. But David had the vision. David had the drive. David had the hunger to say, God must have a dwelling place. And that is the heart of the worshiper. See, God wants to have a dwelling place at your job. God wants to have a dwelling place in your home. He wants to dwell there. But where does God dwell? He dwells in us. So if God's going to be there, it's up to me. Don't go into your job and say it's a godless situation. It's hopeless. You don't know who I work with. Guess what? The Lord has a house there. You're the house. Set it up and say, Lord, you need to dwell here. Come and set your affection and set your attention on the Lord. Y'all all right? So David says that the priority of his presence, God must have a dwelling place. Number two, a lifestyle of worship says this, that God is worthy of my passion. Everybody say passion. How many of y'all are passionate? Some of you, how many are you say I'm not passionate? Yeah, nobody going to say that. <laughs> we are all passionate. We are all passionate. Some people say, well, I'm just, I'm just not very emotional. I bet if someone come and slapped you in the face, we would see how passionate you are, right? And so we all have a passion. Sometimes that passion just needs to be worked. So David, now this story that I'm about to share, we don't really know exactly when it happens. Uh, most people believe that this happens after David was king, uh, the enemies were coming in. So David moves out of Jerusalem and goes back to the cave of Abdullam, where we've talked about before. Other people believe that this is actually where David was running from Saul. Remember when we talked about David was in exile, he was living in caves. And so David is running. Now, when David leaves, and I, and I hold to that belief, I believe that da- this, this was 
referring back to when David was, was running from Saul. And so when David left Israel, he left alone, all by himself. Now, he could have took the kingdom with him. He really could have because people love David. But he said, no, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go alone. And David goes and he lives in this cave and men start coming around him to serve and run with David. But they weren't polished people. They weren't people that had it all figured out. They were men that were in distress. They were men that were in debt. They were men that were discontent. They were frustrated. They were, they, they were kind of, they were probably also exiled. And there were like 300 of these men that said, David, we'll let you be our king. Well, and David said, okay, well, my palace right now is in this cave. So David has all these men that are hanging out with him and they're, they're rebels. But scripture tells us that they were warriors. And so David starts building this army of men, not to go and take, not to go and take Jerusalem, but actually to destroy Jerusalem's enemies, even though David, in my opinion, didn't have the throne yet. And this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So David's in this cave. He's hanging out with his, with his boys, with his mighty men. And it says this, once during harvest time, when David was at the cave of Adullam, the, the Philistine army was camped in the valley of Rephaim. The three who were among the 30. So he had these three guys, right? Um, scripture goes into, if you guys go back and read this, you'll, you can read about these warriors. Like one of them, it says that he fought a lion on a snowy day. Another one said that he fought so hard that his hand like froze to the sword. I mean, these are like, these are like brave heart, like warriors, you know, they're like intense, like gladiator style guys. And they're all like surrounding David because David's like that as well. And so there's three of these guys, they're there with David and this is really a story about them, not so much about David, but, it, but I want to talk about David's heart here. So David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and a Philistine uh, detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. Now, you remember Bethlehem? Bethlehem's the, the city of David. That's where David's from. This is where David lived when he was a young boy. This is where David shepherded sheep. So this is his hometown. And so David's in this cave. He's, he's with all these people that are stressed out. He's stressed out. And he says this. David makes a statement living in this cave. He, he, it, I love how it says this. David remarked longly. His heart longed to his men. And he said, oh, how. Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem. So he's remembering his childhood. And he's thinking, man, I've had a lot of water in my day. But that one well in Bethlehem, oh, man. That's, some, that's, like, that, that's like that Fuji water, right? Is it Fuji or Fiji? Fiji, yeah, that's good water. I like that water. Somebody will bring me some next week. Never preach again without that Fiji. So David's like, man, I want some of that good water. Like $5 water. I want it. I want some of that good water. And so his men, and this is what the scriptures say, his men go. Now, that, again, Bethlehem's surrounded by Philistines. So these three guys said, that's what our king wants? Let's go get it for him. So they go and they break through enemy lines, these three warriors. They go to the well that's there in Bethlehem. They draw water. All the enemies are around them. They sneak the water in and they bring it to David. They're like, here it is, your Fiji water, your $10 water, David. We got it for you. Here it is. It's better than Ozarka. 
This has got Bethlehem water in it, by the way. We put it in there. We flew over there this week. And, and he said, hey, here you go, king. We got this gift for you. And this is, I want you to see, look what David does. Now, Leslie hates this story because of what David does right here. Verse 16, but he refused to drink it. That's jacked up. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. Verse 17, this is what he says. The Lord forbid that I should drink this. This water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David didn't drink it. David pours it out as an offering to the Lord. This is called a drink offering. If you will study your your Jewish history, you'll find out that they would offer many times at the end of a sacrifice, they would pour out what's called a drink offering. The thing that David longed for so much, he poured out for the one that he longed for more than that. David was passionate. He was so passionate about his God. What an extravagant gift that water was. What an extravagant, I mean, it it could have cost these men their lives. What a gift. And David just takes it. Now, I would like to think that David didn't do it in front of his men. I would like to think he was like, oh, God bless you. Thank you so much. I love you. I'll be right back. Right? But if David did that, we would have no record of it. So David, before his men, and this is the deal. They didn't get offended because they knew how much he loved God. But maybe they did. Maybe they did get offended. See, David used this as an opportunity. Did God require this water of David? No. God never asked for it. See, the greatest worship that we'll ever offer the Lord, oh, come on, will be that which he never asks for. What will you give God that he's never asked for? Because when we do that, that exemplifies passion. That's extravagance. You can follow the commands all day long. But when will you go above and beyond? This is where we enter into lovers versus workers. This is how lovers worship. Extravagantly. Y'all all right? See, passion is when we empty ourselves for the task at hand. And for David, he was really emptying himself. He saw this as a gift that was only worthy for God, so he gave it back. At the risk of losing his men. Let me just say this. Your extravagance will offend people. People will be offended by your devotion because extravagance in our devotion can cost us the approval of others. Let me say that again. Extravagance in our devotion can cost us the approval of others. See, listen, people will despise you. They'll be like, man, you, you take this Jesus thing pretty serious. Why are you at the church all the time? Some of y'all have heard that before. Why do, why do you, God does it. I, God likes me and I don't do all that. But we don't get caught up in that. 
We just serve the Lord. We just continue pursuing the Lord. And you know what? There's nothing. There's nothing I could give that he's not worthy of. There's nothing that I can give that he's not worthy of. In fact, I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life as a drink offering saying, God, here it is, here it is, and you're worthy of so much more. And I wish I could have more to give you. So I'll just give you everything I have. I'll pursue you with every sweat, every drop of sweat in my body. You know, you hear people all the time that talk about, man, if it, if it came down to it, I would die for Christ. But people, they're not even living for Christ now. Like, you're talking about dying for Christ. You can't even give Jesus 20 minutes of your day. Maybe you would die for him, but he, he, he's not asking you to die for him. He's asking you to live for him. He just wants you to empty yourself. You know, last week we talked about Michael, remember? Or Mikhail, if you want to correct me. The girl. Looking out that window, despising the extravagant gift that David brought. There's another story in John chapter 12 about someone worshiping God extravagantly and being despised. It says this, as a dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served and Lazarus, y'all remember Lazarus? Come on. Was among those who ate with them. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made of essence of nard. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas, oh, here we go. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume... That spikenard was worth a year's wages, about $20,000. She just poured it out on the feet of Jesus. And here he is. Right? What do you think you're doing? He said, that perfume's worth a year's wages. It should have been sold in the money given to the poor. What an unrighteous woman. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief, and since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole from, some from him, for himself. That's interesting. <laughs> Just in case you're wondering, the betrayal of Jesus, the 40 pieces of silver, was going on long before that moment ever happened. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have this moment. You won't always have this opportunity. And I love that she just, you know, this could have been what she was saving for her kid's tuition for college. I mean, this could have been her retirement fund. And what did she do? She just poured it out at the feet of Jesus. She said, Lord, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. She just began to pour it out on the Lord. And you know what? Someone despised that. Can I tell you today, someone would despise your worship. We don't do it to be despised. 
But when you pour out, people will hate on you for that. You know why? Because they're not willing to pour it out. I love it that it wasn't just an extravagant gift. It wasn't just a passionate gift. It was also a sacrificial gift. See, worship, number three, has a price. Worship has a price. A drink offering is a price. $20,000 poured at the feet of Jesus. He didn't even ask for it, but it had a price. Offering God something costly for David was a core value. I love this in 2 Samuel 24, verse 24. Now David had sinned again, because he sinned a lot, just like you and I. Even though he still maintained a heart that pursued the Lord, he sinned again. And David goes to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And this guy comes up and says, King, you don't need to buy any sacrifices for me. Let me just give them to you. You can just give it to the Lord. And this is what David says. I will not offer God that which costs me nothing. See, true worship comes when it costs us something. I've heard all the time, oh, I'm just not comfortable doing that. That's just not my personality. Does it cost you something? When you worship God, does it cost you something? Does it cost you some energy? Does it cost you some focus? Will you suffer in other areas because you gave it to him? Will you live a life that says, God, I don't care. It may even cost me my life. I'll give it all, abandon it all in pursuit of Jesus. In pursuit of your presence because my heart longs for you. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. He says three things here. First of all, he says this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Other words, don't just die for me, live for me. How many know that there's nothing comfortable about sacrifice? In fact, if it was comfortable, it wouldn't be sacrifice. (laughs) Well, Lord, that's all I can do. All right. Listen, gang, we're going to develop no spiritual equity and no spiritual influence if we only serve God at a level that we're comfortable with. Well, listen, if that is your mentality, welcome to as deep as you're ever going to get right now. Because the only way you're going to go deeper and get deeper and grow is if it costs you a little bit more. And we might be talking about money, but we're probably not. We're probably talking about pride. We might be talking about control. Let's not talk about that one. So he says that offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. Holy and pleasing. 
that we live lives that are consecrated, lives that are set apart. That's what a worshiping lifestyle looks like. It looks like I have set, my life is reserved for God. It's not reserved for my pleasure. It's not reserved for my convenience. It's not reserved so everybody will like me. It's reserved for Him. My life is not that I would be known or I would accumulate, but that His kingdom would be advanced, that my King would be exalted. John the Baptist said it this way, I might decrease that He might increase. Listen, I'm not going to give you five steps how to improve your life today. If I was going to write a book, which I'm not going to, I might get somebody to help me reword some of my sermons, right? But if I'm going to, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to call it that, this. This is how I learned to lay my life down. I mean, that probably wouldn't sell very well, right? Probably not going to get rich on that one. You know, a couple of y'all might read it maybe, hopefully, if I prayed real hard. <laughs> I heard him talk, huh? read his book. The third part of that, this is, it says this, this is your spiritual act of worship. Let me give you a little Greek for that. That word spiritual right there is not what you think it is. The word there is logikos. It's where we get the word logical from. That's why in some translation says that it is your reasonable act of worship. I mean, isn't it reasonable that Jesus would give his life for me? That I would give my life for him? Isn't it reasonable that Jesus would give it all? Doesn't it make sense that I would give it all? I mean, it's just reasonable. Doesn't it make sense? that I would give him the most extravagant gift that I could because he gave me his extravagance. Isn't it reasonable that I would give that back to God? It's reasonable that we would empty our lives. And that's really what we're going for. That we would be that life to say, God, I'm just going to pour it all out. I'm just going to pour my life out. Paul said this two times. He says, I'm like a drink offering. My life's just being poured out. That's, I'm, not, I'm not giving a drink offering. I am a drink offering. And a drink offering isn't complete until it's all gone. And one day, just like you, I'm going to step into glory. And I hope at that day, I hope all the water is out of my bottle. I want to empty my life for Jesus because he emptied his life for me. Can I tell you something? God gave a drink offering. How many know God gave a drink offering 2,000 years ago when he looked at humanity and he said, they are far from me. They are distant from me, but I want them. So I'm going to give the people I'm going to give the nations, I'm going to give the world my drink offering. My drink offering is Jesus. I'm going to give them a drink offering. So at Gethsemane, when he was emptying himself, when he was betrayed and denied, he was emptying himself. When he was beaten and wore a poison-filled crown of thorns, 
He was emptying himself. When he was whipped with those stripes for our healing, he was emptying himself. When he carried the cross, he was emptying himself. When he was nailed to a cross, a criminal's death, he was emptying himself. When he was naked and shamed, he was emptying himself. And when he cried out, it is finished, he emptied himself. And I love this before any of that ever happens. He was having a meal. Can we pass out the communion elements? He was having a meal with his disciples. And he says this. Can I have one of those? He says, this is my blood. Poured out. This is my life. What is life is in the blood. I'm the drink offering. This is my blood. It's being poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we here, here we are, Palm Sunday, thinking about God's drink offering, thinking about Jesus. Listen, we don't take communion together to be religious. We take communion together to say we remember we remember the blood that was shed we remember that Jesus emptied himself and then we remember that Jesus emptied the grave